Well, in our culture, we've become increasingly uncomfortable, I feel, with the idea that sometimes there really are winners and losers. My boys are playing their second year of Little League Coach Pitch Baseball. And I am not busting on the program. I'm really not. But it is just interesting that at their level, no one wins and no one loses. We don't keep score because everyone makes it around to home. We don't have outs. So if the team in the field makes a great play, beats the batter to the bag, even catches a line drive, the the batter just keeps going. The kid's not out. And I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. Because at, at this level, when they're that young, we're, we're trying to teach them the basic skills of baseball to all the kids without having to deal with all the upsetness that would occur if we were calling kids out and we were keeping score and one team lost 22-2, to two, as I seem to remember my team did once when I was a kid. In fact, I have this thought that it might have been 42 to 2, but but that just, I think that must be my overactive imagination. Anyway, and I know that it doesn't stay this way. I know that the the higher leagues keep score. But it's just interesting. It's just one indication that as a society, we aren't really sure anymore that there ought to be winners and losers. Does anyone really deserve to be a loser? And yet the reality is there really are winners and losers sometimes. And sometimes there ought to be. And we hesitate to acknowledge this. Why? Take it one level down. I think it's because we're increasingly idea with, we're increasingly uneasy with the idea that there are good guys and there are bad guys. See, everything has to be nuanced today. At the movie theater, villains are given tragic backstories that help us understand why they aren't completely responsible for their actions. They're not really evil. They're just misunderstood. Heroes, by contrast, nowadays are portrayed as morally conflicted, not really any different from the villains that they must so reluctantly defeat. We're less and less willing to think in terms of good and evil. And we prefer messy and complicated And therefore, the thought of good triumphing over evil, those categories start to feel foreign to us. And yet the Bible is very, very comfortable dealing with those categories. And so today in our passage, we're going to read about warfare and vengeance upon enemies and God's people gaining the mastery over those who hate them. And celebration and joy when victory is won and the enemies are defeated. It might make you uncomfortable. But it is God's word to us. And I'm convinced 
that God wants to use Esther 8 through 10 to teach us about how we are to conduct ourselves in this year of our Lord, this complicated, messy year of our Lord, 2022. The question is, will we be willing to listen to him? So turn in your Bibles, please, to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, I think you'll find it on page 414. Esther chapter 8, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 17. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked." The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mountain riding upon swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king 
in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. So here in chapter 8, we see preparations for victory. Haman's dead. He was the chief enemy. He was the architect of this wicked plan to destroy all the Jews throughout the empire of Persia. And last week we saw how he went down in defeat before Esther and Mordecai. He was shamed. He was humiliated. He was exposed. He was executed. Hanged on the very tree upon which he had planned to kill Mordecai. And therefore he was shown to be under the curse of God. He's dead. The chief enemy's crushed. And now the king confiscates his property and hands it over to Esther and to Mordecai. But that doesn't mean that the God's people have a complete victory yet. There's lots more that has to be done. So our deliverers get to work. Now, as we get into these details, I want you to understand something. Esther and Mordecai, how, do they, how are they working? They both foreshadow what Jesus is going to do. They're both types of Christ. They're both deliverers whom God has raised up to save his people. And they each do different deliverer-y sorts of things. So together, they form like a, a dyad, a team of two, to form one wonderful picture of Jesus' greater work as our deliverer. So, Mordecai and Esther, both representing Jesus, both working to deliver their people, working as a picture of Jesus. Mordecai first. Mordecai, first off, is exalted to be the agent of the king and entrusted with his authority. So Ahasuerus is in the loop now. He knows who Mordecai is. He knows that Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he's the guardian who raised her. And the king now bestows on Mordecai his own signet ring, which he'd taken back from Haman. Now this is cool, because the signet ring, that's like the king's signature. If you possess it, you have the king's full trust. Because any communication that's sealed with the king's ring is considered an official communication from Ahasuerus. And Mordecai is now the one who has been given the authority to speak and to act on behalf of the great king. Mordecai is the king's trusted and chosen agent. But there's a problem. There's still a problem. Haman's wicked decree did not automatically get overturned when he went down. And so the Jews are still slated to all get destroyed and killed and annihilated. That's the first decree at the end of this year. It's the third month now. Okay, At the twelfth month, they're still scheduled for destruction. So once again, Esther comes 
to the fore. She intercedes for her people once again before the king. Now, she doesn't have to be subtle anymore. She knows that she has the king's goodwill. And so she just falls at his feet and with desperate weeping, she begs him to avert the doom of the Jews. She can't bear. She can't bear to see her people perish. And again, he extends the golden scepter to her and raises her up. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Oh, Lord, I have unceasing grief in my heart for my kindred according to the flesh because they don't know Jesus. I'd even want myself to be accursed if that were possible. I'm so distressed at their their plight. Now, the decree of death, though, it's binding. It's really binding. The king can't simply revoke it. There's only one solution. He will allow a counter-decree to be issued. Decree number one, decree number two. He'll issue this counter-decree. It can't overturn the first one, but he authorizes Esther and Mordecai to use this counter-decree however they want. They got carte blanche. They're free to modify the situation however they choose so that the Jews can actually be saved from death. So Mordecai gets to work. He sets the wheels of the palace in motion. He writes up a counter-decree in the king's name, gets it sealed, signed, sealed, delivered, translated, sent to every corner of the the empire at all possible speed. So what happens? By the end of the third month, the news starts going out by the Pony Express. News starts going out. And now imagine the Jews scattered in all the provinces, grieving, sitting in darkness and the shadow of death, and suddenly they hear this second proclamation. And this time it's good news. It's news of life. It's news of hope and deliverance and joy. It overturns all their expectations. Now, what exactly does this proclamation say? It says that on the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month, that's the day on which Haman had decreed that the Jews were to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, they're authorized to gather and defend their lives. They can muster themselves together for their defense. And they're authorized to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force that comes against them. If anyone, that includes men, women, children, if anyone attempts to carry out the first decree of Haman's and attack the Jews, then the Jews are permitted to wipe them out and take their property as plunder. And I want you to notice several things here. This counter decree closely mirrors the first evil decree. This wording, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, that's exactly what was decreed by the Jews, against the Jews by Haman. The Jews were all to have been destroyed, including their women and children, and now all the attackers may be destroyed, including any women and children who choose to participate in the attack. The Jews' goods were supposed to be plundered. Now the Jews plunder the goods of those who attack them. It's a very, very close mirror image of the first decree. And so all the firepower that was contained in the first decree, all that firepower may now be lawfully turned against those who come against God's people. 
But notice another thing. This is an authorization for self-defense. It's self-defense. The decree allows the Jews to defend themselves using deadly force, but against those who actually come against them in arms. They don't have a broader mandate than that. If they come for you, you're authorized to take them out. But I tell you, this is just a stupendous, amazing reversal. Remember, this whole story is a story of reversal. This counter-decree effectively overturns the And it promises life, and it promises victory. And so Mordecai, the architect of this decree of life, he goes out, he's arrayed in royal glory, and he receives joyous acclaim all throughout Susa. And look back at the last the last. Many from the peoples of the country declare themselves Jews. Pagan folks from the surrounding nations, they become Jews as a result. Now they see how the wind is blowing. They see that the Jews are now headed for victory and exaltation, and they join themselves to God's people. I don't think we need to cast any shade on them as if you know, this, the circumstance somehow makes them fair-weather converts who are just doing this for the bennies. I, th- I think it's very possible that they see the hand of God in all these events and they decide, boy, I must make their God my God. I think that's a perfectly reasonable reaction. And it's wonderful that one of the fruits of God's great deliverance is that Gentiles are gathered into the community of the faithful. So the Jews have feasting, light, gladness, glory, and honor. And that's really interesting because the work's not even actually done yet. You know, the complete victory is still nine months away. Babies can still be conceived and born. But the preparations of victory have been already put in place. The promise of victory is already here. They have the down payment. And therefore, they have great cause for rejoicing even as they await the final deliverance. Now, friends, I sure hope that you can start seeing some parallels between what's going on in Esther and what God's doing in the great picture of redemptive history. Let me try and make it as plain as I can. God the Father, the sovereign ruler of all, king of the universe, at his side is the one whom he loves, his son, who finds favor in his sight and with whom he is well pleased. And God's beloved son, like Esther, God's beloved son has a people whose welfare is very dear to him. They are his. He loves him, but his people are in danger because they have this great enemy. His name is Satan the adversary and accuser, and through the enemy's evil plots, all of the beloved son's people have come under a decree of death because of sin. And the son loves his people. The son cannot bear to see them perish. And so he agrees and commits to becoming their deliverer. And he comes into the world as the God-man, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, And the son lays down his life 
in order that his people might be saved and is raised back up on the third day. And he struggles, he struggles against his people's fierce enemy and defeats them. But the decree of death can't just be waved away. God the Father, the righteous ruler, the just judge, he cannot just nullify the death penalty against his son's sinful people. He can't pretend it's not binding and simply ignore it. It's irrevocable. And yet it is his desire that his beloved son's people be saved from death. And so he issues a counter decree. A counter decree of life and redemption and authorizes his son to see that it's carried out. This counter decree is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes out and it's published far and wide into the four corners of the kingdom. And it's good news. It's such good news. And it promises life to all those who belong to the Son, to the Beloved One, because of what He has done in laying down His life for them on the cross. And it promises that the Son's people will have deliverance and victory And then the ones who hear this counter-decree, this good news of the gospel, the ones who heed it and decide to join themselves to the Son's people, will share in that life and that victory. And they will know that joy. Friends, this is what the book of Esther is teaching us. It's teaching about Jesus Christ, the Deliverer who laid down His life and who intercedes for his people so that they might be saved from death. Even now, even now as I speak to you, the good news of this salvation is going out, the news that it's available to you. But all this, all of chapter 8, that's still preparatory. The final victory over the last enemies has not yet been attained, either in Esther's story or in our story for that. Let's look ahead now to the achieving of that victory in Esther chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. So we've skipped ahead to the twelfth month. On that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Ariditha and Parmashta and Arisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
but they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then will they have done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows or on the tree. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month. 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of feasting and gladness, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So now the narrative moves fast forwards nine months The 13th day of the 12th month, that's the fateful day that chosen by Haman for the Jews' destruction. Now what's interesting is that even though King Ahasuerus has made it very clear that the Jews now have his favor, there are still many, many thousands of people throughout the empire who share Haman's point of view. They hate the Jews with a deep and bitter hatred And the king's favor on the Jews doesn't sway their minds. And those enemies decide they're still going to go and attack God's people and hope to somehow still gain the mastery over them. Might be ludicrous, but it's wicked. But again, the tables turn. And the very opposite that they intend occurs. And the Jews instead gain mastery over those who hate them. So they they follow the decree. They gather to defend themselves and they overpower. Anyone who comes against them, they overpower them. And no one can stand against them. No weapon turned against them prospers. Even the local officials end up assisting them because they're all afraid of Mordecai now. And in the 127 provinces, all the way from Ethiopia to India, the Jews kill 75,000 guys who attack them. 500 in the capital city itself, including, no surprise, Haman's ten sons. And this is now the final victory. And notice that it's a complete and total victory. We see that from Esther's request in verse 13. She must realize that in Susa there remain some enemies after the first day who still intend when they can to lay hands on the Jews. So she asks the king that the Jews in the Susa be allowed to continue to pursue the enemies for a second day. And at the end of the second day, another 300 men who hate them are dead. So the Victory is complete. 
Now, why don't they lay their hands on the plunder? Seems a little odd. They were authorized to. They were allowed to. I believe that's an echo back to the earlier times when God's enemies were devoted to destruction. And specifically, back to 1 Samuel 15. We looked at that before. That's when Saul is supposed to go against Amalek and devote them to destruction. And not, he's not allowed to take any plunder. But he didn't obey. He kept back some of the plunder, some of the livestock, as well as Agag, the Amalekite king, who became Haman's ancestor. And Saul's failure in this matter cost him the kingdom. Now, my guess is that this, second, this time around, the Jews are clear. They understand this is not a war for personal gain. This is God's battle against God's enemies on behalf of God's people. So they rise above Saul's failure. They aren't going to take any of the plunder. But in this way, empowered by their deliverers, God's people achieve a complete victory over all their enemies. And after their triumph, they rest. They rest from their labors. Friends, this also is teaching us about God's larger redemptive plan. But I think it's part of the plan we haven't yet experienced. Because this is talking about final victory. Chapter 9 points us forward to the defeat of the last enemies when the Lord Jesus will come back again in glory and power. Paul describes what's going to happen on that day in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Then will come the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected To him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death where is your victory? Oh death where is your sting? Now when does that happen? Is it now? Later. That's later. Friends on the the 13th of Adar. The decree of death against the Jews was finally overturned. And for them, death was swallowed up in victory. Now, little v victory, right? It was a temporary reprieve. Every one of them was going to die. Even Esther and Mordecai would eventually die. But Jesus is different. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so when he returns, he will finally lift every last remnant of the curse of death from off our shoulders. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will rise in glorious, resurrected, renewed bodies, brimming right to their fingertips with Jesus' own incorruptible, indestructible resurrection life. And as for those who belong to Jesus, who are still alive when he comes, in the twinkling of an eye, he will transform their lowly bodies. Philippians 3 says, he'll transform their lowly bodies to be like his glorious body and then death shall be swallowed up for all time and then 
we shall enter into victory and rest. It's not yet, but it's coming. We know it's coming. But we must not also ignore that there's a warning. There's a serious warning here. See, the final triumph of Jesus and his people necessarily requires the defeat of all those who hate him. Jesus and his people win. Jesus and his people win. All their enemies lose. And that's not just Satan and the evil angels who are going to lose. That will include people, too. Men and women, boys, girls even, who choose to remain Jesus' enemies. It may include some in this room. It includes all those who hold on to their sin and disdain his people and hate the gospel. This is what Paul writes to the suffering Thessalonian church. They've got, they got enemies. They've got problems. People are coming against them. Paul says this, Therefore we ourselves boast about you. Because you're standing firm. So we boast about you for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. This is actually evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified on in his saints, and to be marveled among, at among all who have believed. So i got to ask, do you fit any of these descriptions? Are you one who afflicts Jesus' people? Are you one who does not know God? Are you one who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? If you are this morning, then you are his enemy. And if you remain in that condition and you will not repent, then on the day when Jesus is revealed, he will be avenged on you. He will avenge himself on you. He will gain the mastery over you. And you will lose You will lose everything. And you know what? You will deserve to. You will deserve to. And you will spend eternity lamenting all that you have lost and reproaching yourself that you were too proud to submit yourself to Jesus Christ and to receive the salvation and the pardon and the forgiveness that he offered you. He's offering it to you right now. 
through my little voice. He still extends his hand of of blessing and you're refusing it. But there's still time. There's still time to make peace. There's still time to let go of your hostility and join yourself to God's people. And Jesus still offers you the opportunity to share in his victory. So now we turn briefly to the final idea in our passage. Because having made preparations for victory, having achieved victory, God's people now celebrate their victory. I'm going to read not all the rest of the text, but, but part of it. Start at verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as a month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. Now jump down to chapter 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So this book ends with celebration and exaltation. Mordecai and Esther instruct the victorious Jews that every year, year by year, they're supposed to commemorate this victory throughout their generations. It's never supposed to cease. And that's how the festival of Purim begin, which if you have friends who are Jewish, they still observe this feast. They read this book and, and, and do noisemakers every time Haman's name gets, gets read and they do all sorts and they eat special cookies and things. It's an eternal... So what do we exactly have? We have... Think about it. We've got an eternal celebration. A rejoicing that never comes to an end. A continual holiday in which God's people commemorate the fact that they've been saved from death. The agony of death is past. Now light and salvation have come. And there amidst all the celebration is the victorious deliverer, Mordecai. He's exalted to the highest place of honor right next to the king. And he seeks the welfare, not, of, not just for himself, but seeks the welfare of his people. And speaks peace to his people. And shall we not see in this a little foretaste of heaven? little foretaste of heaven, eternal rest. Eternal joy and light and honor. Because when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And right at the center, seated on his Father's throne, absorbing our attention for all eternity is a figure of the Lamb. Worthy. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who is slain, who by His blood 
has ransomed for God people from every tribe and language and nation. And he has made them a kingdom, priests to our God. And they shall reign upon the earth. Jesus wins. He's won the victory. He is victory. He will win the victory. And now, brothers and sisters, how ought we to in light of Jesus' victory? We ought to live optimistically. And we ought to live offensively. Offensively. So as to promote his victory. First, optimistically. Let's locate ourselves rightly in the Esther story. Where do we fit at this moment of redemptive history? I think we fit with the Jews who have received the good news of Mordecai's decree. And what are they doing? They're anticipating the final victory that's still yet to come, but they're already rejoicing. That's us. Brothers and sisters, we don't have the final victory yet, but we already have light and gladness and joy and honor because Jesus has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so we're darn happy. He's turned our mourning into dancing. Yes, we're grieved by various trials, those trials that are intended to produce attested genuineness in our faith, according to 1 Peter 1. But God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And though we have not seen Jesus, we've not seen Jesus, but we love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Our now is already filled with joy. Because the decree of death against us has already been canceled. And because Jesus is in us to purge away all the remnants of our old dead lives. Making us a new creation. And because we look ahead. We look forward and we know that the end, we know the end of the story. It's seeing Jesus and being with him together in glory and sharing in his victory. Listen, we can lose sight of these realities. So easily we lose sight of this joy. We look around us, we see the brokenness of the world, and it is broken. And we see a culture that arguably is more hostile to Jesus than it might have been a generation ago. Possible? And we start thinking we're losing. Or worse yet, that Jesus is losing. We start to think that the darkness might be winning. But that's not true. It's just not true. Not overall. Listen, we can't be parochial and think that Vermont or even the United States is the be-all and end-all of God's purposes. There's a whole world of nations out there. And Jesus has commanded that they all be discipled. And they are being discipled. And the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And Jesus is being known and loved and worshipped more and more all over this globe. And what might feel like setback in one region doesn't negate that. And who's even to know what progress will look like for the church in New England? I don't pretend to. What if increasing opposition comes? Is that necessarily bad? Maybe. 
Maybe not. Perhaps the Lord intends to refine and purify his people. Perhaps even separate wheat from chaff. Are we to say that that's a bad thing? No, Jesus triumphs. Let us not pretend to know the purposes of God in all the the details. We know the purpose of God in the big picture. And that's that Jesus gets the nations. And that the testimony about him goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. It came here, didn't it? It came to you. So let us live with a fundamentally optimistic viewpoint on the prospects of the kingdom of God. Dr. Don Carson, many of you know him, he tells the story of his dad, who was laboring mid-20th century. He was a missionary to Francophone Quebec, right up north. Lisa and I visited their church on on, uh, our honeymoon. He was ministering faithfully, but it was hard. The soil was hard. And in one particularly challenging season, Don asked his father, Dad, why don't you just give up? And his dad looked at him and quoted Acts 18.10, because I believe Jesus has many people in this city. And you know what? Mr. Carson lived to see the Lord bring in a significant harvest in Quebec during the 70s. Friends, Jesus wins. And he will win. So we can live, even in the midst of difficulty, with optimism. And if we live optimistically, then let us live offensively. So as to promote his victory. Not offensively, like obnoxiously. We don't go around being obnoxious but offensively, as in, not defense, moving out, attempting to take territory for our Savior. Let's not become complacent as if Jesus will take care of all the victory stuff and there's nothing for us to do. No. See, the Jews in Persia, they heard that decree and they got ready to fight, and they did fight. Let's do the same. And right now, at this stage of the game, fighting means subduing Jesus' enemies by turning them to repentance and faith in him. It's evangelism. Some of our enemies, some of his enemies, are going to change sides, just like many of us change sides. And Jesus said that if we lift up our eyes, we'll see the fields are white for harvest. So friends, let's go out. Let's pick some portion of some field and try and tackle it. We've got a whole glorious Vermont summer ahead of us. How will we use it? How will we use it to promote Jesus' victory? Because he's winning and he will win. His church is winning. We win with him. Let's act like we believe it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we serve a victorious Savior. It looked as if he was defeated when he was raised up on the cross, but that was actually the means of his triumph by which he defeated Satan and will and gave us the promise of the defeat of all our enemies. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would help us to live with a 
gleam in our eye, excited for what you're doing and what you will do. And Lord, enlist us in your service, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.